Welcome in to the 50th episode of Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I'm Ira Creaseman. On this episode, we begin our conversation of Final Fantasy VII. And Ira, we did it. I mean, we haven't accomplished anything, but hey, yeah, we accomplished the episodes. We, we did a thing. We did fifty versions. Yeah, of the we've thing. done 50, at least fifty things. Fifty some hours of two straight white dudes talking about Final Fantasy. <laughs> there you have it. Put that as a tagline for the podcast <laughs> moving forward. Uh, on this episode, we begin our conversation of. Final Fantasy VII, and I didn't say the plot themes and characters because we have to begin with a step way back from all of that. Uh, Nobody listening to this is unaware, but this is probably the most talked about Final Fantasy game ever. In fact, it may be the single most discussed video game in history. Uh, I don't know how I would quantify that. Um, we've got maybe some a, stats that yeah, a YouTube that algorithm could could figure that out for us, maybe. Yeah. So we ask a lot of big questions whenever we start a new game, and then try to come back and answer them again at the end. And we're gonna do that in a in a bit. We've got some housekeeping to take care of first, but we're throwing out the hugest question first, and it requires me to tell a story uh, about a year ago. I was driving home to see all of you for the holidays and a couple hour drive. And my girlfriend, who's now been around me while I'm doing all of this stuff, and she knows I'm huge into it. She's never played any of the games but 15. Has a general understanding of the series, though. And she just kind of out of the blue goes, So what's the big deal with 7? Yeah. That, that That is a question. (laughs) that is the question isn't it what is the big deal with final fantasy 7 why is it so much more discussed than any of these others Um, you know we talk about the sales numbers final fantasy 7 sold 10 million copies which is more than final fantasy 4 5 6 and chrono trigger combined and it's not all in how much you sell, but it was also famously referred to as the game that sold the PlayStation. And in our particular case, that could not be more true. Yeah, it was quite literally why we bought a PlayStation. So I've told this story before on the podcast, but that was 50-some episodes ago, so I'll do it again. When I was 16 years old, uh, so that was the beginning of my junior year. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was the fall. Was it the fall of that year? I have no idea. 1997. So I was uh, 16 years old. Final Fantasy VII was coming out. And you and I really wanted to play it. So I had saved up some cash. And I decided that I was going to just go get it. So on my lunch break at high school... I drove from my high school to Toys R Us, about a 10, 15 minute drive if it's 
you know, if you don't have to slow down too much. There, you know, it was lunchtime, so everybody was leaving. So there was traffic going there and coming back. Uh, and it took me a while to drive out there, but I knew exactly what I wanted. I went to the video game aisle. I picked up... You, you weren't allowed to actually grab the merchandise in at Toys R Us at the time. You had to, like, get these little paper slips and take them up to the front, and then they would go right. into their back section. Yeah. So I got, I got uh, the little paper ticket for a PlayStation, a little paper ticket for Final Fantasy VII, and I, I purchased it with the cash that I had saved. And then I drove back to school. Uh, I got no lunch because that took the entire lunch period, but I also wasn't late to class. So, you know, there you a go. little give it, a little take. Yeah. Uh, and then that night, I don't remember if I had told you I was going to do this or not. Do you remember? I just remember immediately being uh, looped into the plan, uh, becoming <laughs> a, a co-conspirator uh-huh. uh, without hesitation. Right, right. So we decided that we didn't really want to have to explain to our parents what I had done. Not necessarily because it was bad. You know, not, I mean, Dad didn't really get video games, but he didn't disapprove. Right. And he really liked the music. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Mom was all about stories and telling stories and watching stories and reading and listening. But I but did. If you told them you just spent a couple hundred dollars to play right. one video game, they yes. might. <laughs> I did not want to have to explain, yeah, why I had spent that money on the this one thing, basically. So our bedroom was downstairs. the The house is sort of built on a hill, so you can access the the downstairs from around the back side of the house. So I, uh, I had you go down into our room and open the window, right. and I got. The, the PlayStation and game in the bag and walked around to the back side of the house and slipped it through the window. And That's then right. I came in through the front while you uh, set up downstairs, assuming I'm recalling this part correctly. And then uh, we, uh, in secret, though I'm using air quotes, because yeah. <laughs> I don't know how secret it was, uh, we played Final Fantasy VII uh, for several hours straight. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was definitely an event and, and a memorable one. And I'm not sure we needed to do all of that, right, but right. <laughs> but just to be sure. And it's how much we didn't also want any kind of impeding of it. Uh, they might, you know, dad would, uh, if he knew we had a new thing to play, would say, okay, but you have to wait until after. And we just wanted to right. get to it. <laughs> right, right. I also can vividly recall not wanting to move away from Nintendo. Like many, many people, I'm sure, at the time, this is one of the things we'll talk about. So there's a whole meta conversation to be had with Final Fantasy VII. There are a lot of big questions from inside the game, but there are so many just about the existence of the game, how it was made, why it was made, who made it, and for what platform. And the jump from Nintendo to PlayStation was a huge deal and something people who are far more you know researched in the history of this stuff are going to know better than us but this is a story that's well been told at this point that it basically was the artistic drive of Hironobu Sakaguchi and to some degree Nobuo Uematsu that demanded that their art was too grand in scope to be limited to what the Nintendo was offering at the time. And so the jump to PlayStation was all about being able to realize their artistic vision without making any compromises. And you can see that all over this game. 
But I think it's important to note that like a lot of people out there, you and I had many of the same concerns over Final Fantasy VII. It's not on the Nintendo anymore. It's not 2D. It's not in a medieval fantasy setting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's only a party of three instead of four. That's still something that sticks with me. So I I think we both came into this, while we were obviously excited enough that we had to go get it and find out, we were hesitant, reluctant, um, perhaps even a little bit cynical coming into it. There's also something to be said for the console wars of the 80s and 90s, where you Nintendo or Sega, and a lot of people I knew at the time could really only afford one console. So you had either a Nintendo or a Sega. And, and I mean, it's silly, but we still do this. Like we still sometimes define ourselves by the, by the products we consume or the, the media we prefer. And it's a bit silly, but it, there's also something to be said for, you know, I like, I like what Nintendo does more than I like what Sega does. Yeah. And so it kind of helped me that they weren't jumping to Sega. They were jumping to a, a new, the, the new kid, as opposed to, uh, you know, just switching sides. Right. And so they did. <laughs> um, all right. Let's 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 do the housekeeping bit because we're going to jump right back into some of these conversations. But once the game was made, released, and scored, this is what happened. Oh, I should mention, first of all, it was pr- this was produced by Hironobu Sakaguchi. It's the first game that was directed solely by Yoshinori Kitase. Uh, he did help direct Final Fantasy VI, uh, but he's obviously huge, hugely important in the series now. Kitase, if Sakaguchi is the father of Final Fantasy, then I think Yoshinori Kitase is the godfather of Final Fantasy, or the, the next, you know, he's actually, he's the father of Final Fantasy now that Sakaguchi has moved on. This was his directorial debut. Nailed it. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. The, the, and the other thing too is we've been able to go over like most of the staff in previous games. We're not going to be able to do that now. This was the most expensive game ever made at the time, and you know the staff had ballooned out to over a hundred people. Where the first game was made by like six or seven people. Right, um, right. So the most notable change, obviously, was that the characters were no longer conceived and designed by Yoshitaka Amano but instead by Tetsuya Nomura, another huge aesthetic change for the series and why Final Fantasy VII looks and feels quite a bit different from the six games that came before it. That is interesting. I wonder what it would have looked like had they continued with Amano because the the 2D pixel art doesn't exactly look like Amano's art, maybe in the monsters, right? Like in some of the bigger pieces, it kind of does. Right. But that style, trying to translate it to 2D pixel art, and we said this before, those those pixel artists deserve a huge amount of credit for coming anywhere close to managing that. So I don't, would it have been more dreamlike? Would there have been more flowy scarves and and random little animals? I I don't know. But uh, the fact that they were able to translate Nomura's art to this 3D style, even as uh, blocky and awkward as it sometimes is, is, again, truly impressive. 
Absolutely. And obviously, we'll, we'll keep conversation going about that because it is a huge part of this game. The technology it was produced on, how it looks, and like I said, who made it. These are all big influences on the conversation. But ultimately, what had happened was <laughs> the game became a classic. No matter who you ask, no matter who you talk to, this is an indispensable game in the history of gaming. Let me run through uh, some of the rankings on certain publications. And I put these in this order because I think it also shows an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, back in 2001, EGM did their best 100 games of all time and ranked it 91st, which is interesting. Uh, I oh. think it's because it just had to be on the list. They, they ranked other Final Fantasy games ahead of it. Retro Gamer did their top 100 games in 2004 and ranked it fourth. Interesting. I guess when you get to the top 100 games of all time, there's a lot of moving around. Right. And, and I'll have a, another thought on that, too, when I get to the end of the rankings here. But, um, yeah, PALGN uh, ranked it third in their 100 greatest games ever. In 2006, Empire... Ranked it second in their top 100, and Stuff in 2008 ranked it third. Game Informer did 200 games, top 200 games of all time, in 2009, and ranked it 15th. It had previously been in 10th place. Here's one I think is really interesting, because in 2007, GamePro ranked it 14th on the list of most important games of all time. Not entirely sure how they define important, sure. but that's a word I'm going to be using a lot throughout this conversation as well. And then in 2009, it finished also in 14th on their list of the most innovative games of all time. GameSpot did a similar thing and called it the second most influential game ever made. I believe Mario was number one on the list, and sure. so you can say it's the most influential story-based game ever made. Uh, GameSpot in 2006 didn't rank them. They just did their greatest games of all time list. Of mm -hmm. course, Final mm -hmm. Fantasy VII was included. That's how I would prefer to do things. Yeah, Time Magazine did a, a similar thing, just named it one of the greatest games of all time. More recently, in 2018, Game Informer had a reader's choice, so people could vote, and it came in seventh place. And in 2007, Dengeki PlayStation gave it the best story, best RPG, and best overall game in retrospective awards for games on the original PlayStation. I love that idea of going yeah. back at, and looking at an entire life cycle of one system and then retroactively giving awards. Yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, it's really hard to tell the history of the era you're in. Sometimes you have to wait for that era to end, however it, you might mark that, give it some time, and then look back. So yeah, I really I really appreciate that as a concept. I also want to say that it's really interesting. I mean, we we live now in a time when lots of people play video games, lots of people grew up playing video games, but at the time gamers and people who played video games were still a subset. We were still kind of the outsiders. 
uh, so that Time Magazine in 2012 was talking about video games. That never would have happened before. And I think it happens at least partially because Final Fantasy VII is such a massive success uh, and people who play video games can point to that game, among others, and say, see, this really can be a form of art. Absolutely. And these last couple of rankings I have, I think are the ones that drive that home because, you know, if you're ranking best video games of all time, we've talked about this. They've all got like different, well, they don't all have different goals in mind, but a lot of them do. Some of them are just trying to entertain you. Some of them are trying to test your skill. Uh, some of them are just trying to show you something funny. And so it can be difficult to rank Mario against Final Fantasy VII. Right. It's why I think, for example, GamePro naming it the best RPG title of all time in 2008 is perhaps a bit more compelling because now we're limiting it to here are games whose goal is to tell you a story. And if you think that storytelling in video gaming is important and important for its legitimacy as art, this might be the most important game ever made from that perspective. The creators of series like Gears and The Last of Us and Red Dead Redemption have all come out and said, Final Fantasy VII was the game that made me realize I could use video gaming as a platform to tell a story that could reach out and touch people emotionally. This is, you know, while we both have argued many times before, four made us emotional, six made us emotional, Chrono Trigger, but we were, as you just pointed out, a part of a very small, that was a niche group of us that were doing that. Right. And this game changed all of that. In 2012, Games Radar ranked it as the sixth saddest game ever. We'll get into all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came in ninth in Famitsu's 2011 poll of the most tear-inducing games of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, second in Famitsu's top 100 favorite games of all time, uh, I believe first was Final Fantasy X. <laughs> so, yep, that's, that's fair. You, users of game FAQs uh, back in uh, 2004 and 2005 when this was kind of the height of online video game culture, back-to-back years voted it as the best game ever. It also won the Reader's Choice Award for Game of the Century in an IGN poll in 2000. Uh, in 2008, readers of Dengeki Magazine voted it the best game ever made. And then, of course, GameSpy in 2003 listed it on their list of most overrated games of all time. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Gotta throw that. Well, it certainly has been highly rated. It's hard to argue against Sure, that. sure. Uh, but I think that's an interesting conversation, too, and we'll see how you know, when and how we get into it throughout this conversation. But there are a number of people who feel that way. They get sick and tired of hearing some of this stuff we've just said about how important it is to storytelling and gaming, what a monumental moment, game-changing moment it was. And in fact, this right here, uh, two quotes. One from Game Fan that was on the back of the box. And I think this really irks people for whom... Final Fantasy VII was just okay or not their thing. <laughs> uh-huh. But it says right there on the back of its box in 1997, a quote from Game Fan, quite possibly the greatest game ever made. And I always really enjoyed the, the GameSpot poll quote of never before have technology, playability, and narrative combined as well as in Final Fantasy VII. I really love quotes like that 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 are the most recent of that kind 
because the greatest game ever made, they mean that up until now. They, they can't predict the future, right? And right. so, uh, yeah, I love that, that at that point, whomever's writing that, whoever's writing that particular review, they would not have seen anything else quite like this before. They would not have had an experience like this before. This was it. This was the one. Right. Uh, and then there was one other poll quote I wanted to take from IGN. And I actually found it in a book I'm going to be referencing here and there uh, called A Mind Forever Voyaging, written by Dylan Holmes. And he's got a whole great chapter on Final Fantasy VII. And he quotes uh, IGN here when they listed it as their number one example of, quote, games as art. And that's what you and I are doing here on this podcast more than games as games, right? Right. And the quote is, with its environmental themes, compelling characters, stirring music, and carefully crafted perspectives, Final Fantasy VII does what all great art should do. Evoke emotion. Nice. I think it is interesting to look back on these games because most of the commentary on these games was written a decade or more ago. Uh, you know, so Final Fantasy VII came out in uh, 97, right? So most of what people were going to say about it has been said. But my guess is that here in a few months, March 3rd, 2020, Final Fantasy VII is going to become again one of the biggest, most grandest video game experiences to have ever been created. I know that I plan on that day to have uh, to be calling in Hooky from school. Uh, I've already told my students uh, for, for that small class I teach that, look, I'm not going to be here March 3rd. It's just, you know, unless something wild happens and I have to be here, but somewhere around there, I'm going to miss a day because I'll be getting up at four in the morning once it downloads on my PlayStation to play Final Fantasy VII again. Yeah, the greatest game ever made again. Maybe. I mean, I'm so hyped. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I say that now I, I want to, we're going to continue moving through into these big questions here. I do want a gigantic caveat for anybody. I know there are final fantasy fans who get sick of the way seven can dwarf all of the others. I hope we threw enough praise onto six. I'll say again here and now that six, seven, and 10, I tend to group as the top. And I wouldn't say that I've never said unequivocally that final fantasy seven is my favorite Final Fantasy game, and I won't, but it may well be the most important. I, I think it it kind it just is. It, and yeah, it it came at that time when a lot of you know teenagers, young adults, we'd been growing up playing it. A lot of us, not everyone, but uh, enough of us that when this thing happened, there were enough people in our orbit who we could pull in and say just watch this one part or maybe just run through a couple mm. battles with me here or, or look yeah. at this big world uh, and at least get some buy-in, right? Hey dad, listen to this song. All right. right. This, this is not, this is not the, the chip tunes, right? This is not a MIDI. Listen to this orchestration. Right. And sort of pull them in at least a little bit so that video games were starting to get more acceptance and people who played video games were starting to get more acceptance and people who made video games, who made art through video games, started to get more accepted. So it's at least as much a timing thing, I think, 
Yes. Oh, as absolutely. Else. It's why, and I think I've said this before, but I'm so glad you brought that up because it's one of my next notes here was that this is why I always compare Final Fantasy VII to the Beatles. Because a lot of it is timing. You happen to come around at the right time. And it is faulty to say, oh, this was the first time there was a great story in a video game. Or this was the first video game that ever made anybody cry. Or that's not true. Just the same way it's not true to say the Beatles were the first rock and roll band. Right. Not even close. But they pop. there's a before and after. There's a before the Beatles and an after the Beatles when it comes to rock and roll music and popular music. And as much as we love six and Chrono Trigger and 10 and Chrono Cross and eight and nine and 12 and 15, seven is one of the handful of games in the history of video gaming where there's a before and after. Video games were one thing before Final Fantasy seven and they were a different thing after at least after the success of Final Fantasy VII. So the only other thing I'll add on that part of the meta conversation is I think even sometimes its industry impact is undersold. We talked about the jump from Nintendo to PlayStation, which was a jump from cartridge technology to disc technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those discs are now by far the most popular medium for games and movies. And you know now it's all Blu-ray or, or whatnot, but the advancements from that kind of technology that they chose this I think you can draw a direct line from the popularity of Final Fantasy 7 to kind of the end of cartridges and even the popularity of things like Blu-ray and even then you can draw a straight line from Nobu Uematsu because it was so important that the music be able to play such a huge role and they wanted close to CD quality sound that because of Uematsu the world of digital information looks differently than it might otherwise. That is a big, bold claim, dude. Yeah, you know, and, and even if it's by some small measure, I the other one is CGI movies. And look at the popularity mm -hmm. of stuff like Pixar. And those people were absolutely looking at Final Fantasy VII as one of the first to put together, I, I think it's about 40 minutes worth of CGI full motion video animated storytelling devices that worked and connected with people. And then we see this huge explosion in the years following 1997 of CGI film. And, sure. you, and can you say they're all, you know, influenced by Final Fantasy VII? In some way, maybe. It's kind of like if you're learning to play the guitar and you've never heard a Beatles song before, but you're learning all of the forms they invented. You don't know you're being influenced by the Beatles, but you are. And right. almost anyone who's making a video game today who wants a good story to be at the heart of it, they've been influenced by Final Fantasy VII. It also brings up this whole interesting meta question about 
video game blockbusters and marketing. This really was the first one. And some people swear to this day that Final Fantasy VII was only successful because they poured so much money into the marketing campaign. Uh, but we're going to talk about some of its corner cutting. There are some interesting decisions that were made, certainly for Final Fantasy VII. And, and you know, some people will argue... You know, those commercials only showed some of the FMV CGI stuff and not what the in-game footage looked like. So it was mm-hmm. a bit mischievous. There's, I mean, you see that all the time now. There will be a little uh, a little disclaimer at the bottom of the screen that says, this is not in-game footage. Right. Uh, though if we want to talk uh, a little bit about Final Fantasy VII advertising, that that advertisement for Final Fantasy VII Remake they, gave, they did recently with the... <laughs> yeah. The brother, sister, girlfriend, boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, man. There was yeah. no no corner cutting there. That was a tearjerker and well done to them. Right. Also, do, do they need to sell us this game? We were going to buy it anyway. So. <laughs> I think sometimes it's good to just remember how it made right. you feel before. It was so good. So good. And a lot of that goes along with, I'm calling this playing in a new sandbox I think there was a lot of Final Fantasy VII that is the way that it is because they could do all these things they couldn't do before. Whether it's the technology wasn't available. Uh, One of the big things is that they were under certain uh, guidelines from Nintendo to keep it about PG. And they could do serious story stuff, but they had to depict it very carefully. Whereas we'll see in Final Fantasy VII, they kind of go crazy with the adult content and some of it I think really works. Some of it is, I think, Hey, we can do this now. Yeah. Um, and I think there are some graphical equivalencies to there where some of the graphics are just mind blowingly amazing. And even to this day, some of the environments hold up and then the blocky characters. So we'll, we'll talk about all those things about how them playing in a new sandbox really impacted some of the stuff you'll see throughout the story. And probably the biggest way in which that's the case in my mind is the cinematic presentation yeah the first six games were limited to basically one camera angle and they got as cinematic as they could yeah we we got some bits here and there in in six with approaching vector some of the stuff in the end credits with the uh, airships swooping around here and there but but yeah it really just was that sort of three-quarter overhead 2d style i guess and, and Final Fantasy VII really does go out of its way to present itself like a film, really, in, in, in many ways. And so we'll right. talk about a lot of those. The, the, very similar to how Final Fantasy VI openly presents itself as an opera. Right, right. We'll talk, of course, about this new setting that we're in. We'll mention the word cyberpunk once or twice. Uh, Final mm-hmm. Fantasy VII is not cyberpunk in the way that Final Fantasy VI is steampunk. Right. It's not quite Neuromancer or Matrix or anything like that. Uh, in right. fact, you, you might almost say it's it's a little bit more uh, dieselpunk. Mm. And, and so, okay, so the we've talked about this before, but as a literary genre the steampunk cyberpunk diesel punk whatever you want to call it the that first word steam or cyber or diesel is as much about the uh where we are on the technological timeline and this game isn't really about the internet it's not really about computer use it's much more about 
what the energy source is, where we draw it from, and what the consequences of that are. So, I mean, trying to fit it into a, a genre, I mean, sometimes trying to do that to art can, you know, drive yourself mad trying to figure out what you want your definitions to be. And it, it can miss the point a bit. But I would say it toes that line. No, it doesn't toe the line. It sort of jumps back and forth between cyberpunk and diesel punk or, or some variation of those. You said something earlier about, you know, if you brought someone in who didn't know about any of this stuff, said, look at this scene or listen to this song. I had mentioned my girlfriend, Caitlin, asking me, what's the big deal with Final Fantasy VII up top? I probably talked for about an hour and a half after she asked me that question. <laughs> we do know how to talk. <laughs> this is part of it. Uh, but then about a month later, we were doing something else and Final Fantasy VII came up and I it just kind of clicked with me and it was something you said here and it's why I'm putting it in the setting conversation. I said, you know what the short answer was to your question? It's because there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else in the world like Final Fantasy VII, except for some of the things that came after it that were purposefully trying to be like Final Fantasy VII. Sure. And and I think this setting is one of the things that, that puts it apart. It's cyberpunk more in its themes though than it is mm-hmm. in its setting, particularly with the giant corporation, right. uh, the, the city, the metropolis. So we're in an interesting place that, like you said, in terms of technology, there are cars and trucks. There isn't uh, air travel just yet. It looks like we're kind of on the verge of getting air travel and, and space right. exploration, and that, that well, plays a role in the story as well. Some people have it, but the, the rich people have it. And that that uh, mega corporation as empire that we've talked about before really pushes the haves and the have-nots that's sort of been hinted at in 6 and not really in the other games. Really right. going to be pushed in tactics, though. The haves and the have-nots in tactics. Ooh. Oh, goodness, yes. Um, but I do think, and, and I may be getting way ahead of myself here, that Final Fantasy VII has one of the most compelling settings of any fictional story I've interacted with. It's unique, but pulls on a lot of familiar concepts. And it's we'll talk about it a lot as we go through because the setting is just unusual. And like you said, kind of difficult to place into any one genre or anything else that's exactly like it because there is nothing else that's exactly like it. It's part of the reason why it's getting remade and why people are so excited about it because you can't get this experience from anything else. And then the last meta big question before we get into our in-game big questions. See, there, this is the thing. There are a lot of big uh, questions when it comes to Final Fantasy VII. Uh, yeah, we're about half an hour into getting ready to talk about Final Fantasy VII. That's right. Setting the stage here. Um, <laughs> but even though its overall plot is still linear, Final Fantasy VII doesn't really have a non-linear plot. It's less linear than the others in certain ways, but it is more ambiguous. And there are more plot twists. I I saw somebody the other day on Twitter refer to Kefka destroying the world in 6 as a plot twist. Um, Hmm. Maybe. I mean, if you didn't see it coming, uh, I don't think there's... You know, that was his goal, more or less, right? Yeah, I I I would say maybe him uh, kicking the Emperor off the floating island was a plot twist in that we expect the emperor to be the big bad guy. That's how it's set up. And then it, it changes. But I don't think uh, Kefka destroying the world 
is so much a plot twist as an in, an inevitable consequence of what he was trying to do from the beginning, which is destroy. Right. So, and you may disagree with this, but in my mind, the first six Final Fantasies are, I would say, relatively easy to follow. I think they were meant for young people to be able to follow and not get confused, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in that way, they're, in the way that they're told, a bit simpler. There's nothing in there that they're maybe trying to throw you off the scent of a reveal later on. You're pretty much with what's going on in any given Final Fantasy up to this point, right? Uh, for the most part, yeah. I, I'm sure we could, if we really wanted to, jump jump deep somewhere. And uh, you know, the the reveal that Final Fantasy One is this giant time loop that we're just now breaking. Sure, okay. that might yeah, be. And in, in most of their end games, actually, yeah. Oh, yeah, Zand. It turns out, yeah. Right, no, right, that's right. That's fair. Right. So there's some here and there, but I feel like. I, I, assuming I understand where you're going with this. I, say, I think you see what I'm getting at here. <laughs> Final Fantasy VII is deliberately not giving you all the information. Right. And again, battle me on this if you don't think it's fair, but I feel like it's written with adults in sure. mind, maybe more than the other ones. And I think that's a big part of why it was successful to a wider audience. Before this, video games were more or less seen as for kids. Right. And well, and, and this is funny because we were kids. You were 15 or 16, so I would have been 10 or 11. So we're kids playing this, but we're also, you know, you're a teenager. I'm coming into my teens. We're young adults. And I think it was more, I don't know, compelling for that kind of an audience. Yeah, I I feel like the, the first six games... Uh, in English teacher and librarian circles, we tend to talk about middle grade and young adult. I guess that's, you know, all anybody who's talking about books, really, writers, editors, authors. And so, it, that, but that's more like when you're talking about genres, that's more the meta lingo. Because I, I feel like four, five, and six, especially four and six, are absolutely jumping into those more mature themes. But it is still... For a younger audience, I guess, I don't know. Certainly people saw it that way, but but people did not look at Final Fantasy VII and see this game as for kids. Even if they would have seen six and five and four that way and been wrong, they did not look at Final Fantasy VII the same way. And that, you know, that's probably because it was in 3D and they, you know, it was not 2D pixel art. And Midgard looks like serious business. Right. It's... It's dark in its palette, and it's serious right. more consistently in its tone. Though there's plenty of silly ridiculousness in this game. Right, right, which people seem to forget a lot, and I hope the remake doesn't lose some of that, you know? Like, yeah, Cloud is a very serious, stoic guy, but he's also, you know, let's mosey. Says let's mosey, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, right, he's a goofball. Yeah, a little bit. He's trying to hide it some. So yeah, I I don't I don't know that I would say that it was written for adults in the way you might say you know Game of Thrones versus Harry Potter, right? I don't know that it was de- deliberately more toward the Game of Thrones end of the spectrum than the Harry Potter end of the spectrum. Uh, I just think that it was more easily perceived that way because of the commercial push, because of the color palette, 
uh, and because of the technological freedom. Yeah. Well, and I mean, poison the river. (laughs) Well, and the end of Harry Potter is very. That's why I chose that as the example. No, I think that's yeah. All right. So as we move into the in-game big questions, you actually just kind of touched on one a minute ago there about who is Cloud. What what is Cloud? Who is he? And that might be the central question of this game. I think more than any other, again, up to this point, maybe four. But Seven revolves around its main character. Mm -hmm. And his crisis of personal identity that allows us to also struggle with personal identity. And all of the other characters struggle with it as well, but how do you know that you are who you think you are? Or what does it mean to be a collection of memories and experiences versus a person with free will and a drive? Like, these are deep, very difficult questions to answer, and Cloud is the vehicle through which we get to ask them of ourselves. It's interesting that his name is Cloud. I've never put a lot of stock in his name meaning something specifically, Cloud Strife. But, I mean, if we want to get into sort of a a literal understanding of of metaphors, perhaps, because his personal identity is a bit amorphous, because depending on how you look at it, where you're standing, it might look like something else. Uh, It might seem to be something else. And especially if you're standing in the middle of a cloud, uh, it, it might be difficult to discern. His strife, to be sure, is is particularly important to the story. So that his personal identity is a bit amorphous. His memories are a bit amorphous. Is I guess it's an appropriate uh, a name for such a character. Yeah, it's it's pretty perfect. In addition to just fitting in with the sort of natural phenomenon-themed names, Terra, Cloud, Squall, so on. Um, But yeah, good stuff. So we'll be talking a lot about personal identity and memories and the ambiguity of memories. Of course, especially up front, we're going to talk about the themes of corporate greed and capitalism. Final Fantasy VII is the most political of the Final Fantasy games at this point. As we said, the, the previous didn't shy away from big topics, even potentially controversial topics, but... This game is clearly much more pointed at modern problems in a less like, oh, you kind of have to read between the lines and more like, no, this is very specifically representing 
modern capitalist greed and corporations taking over the world. Yeah, we we definitely had to read between the lines a bit when it came to Final Fantasy VI. Uh, I would say that this aspect of Final Fantasy VII moves a bit toward the uh, Hayao Miyazaki end of things, right? Like Hayao Miyazaki is not splitting hairs when it comes to uh, Castle in the Sky or Valley of the Wind, right? He is absolutely saying war is hell and we need to be careful about how far down these paths we go. Right. And so like most science fiction and cyberpunk stories, this part of it, both the corporate greed and capitalism part, and the environmentalism and the Gaia theory, which is right at the center of this whole story, is a warning. That's what, you know, great science fiction, that's what's so interesting is that this has also brought Final Fantasy more, it's, it's definitely still fantasy before science fiction, but some of these themes that crop up are more commonly seen in something like Star Trek or, or, or even Blade Runner. Sure. I, I think it's fun, especially with the environmentalism one. I, I feel like people say that this is where it started for Final Fantasy, but if you go all the way back to Final Fantasy I, you know, putting things out of balance is what makes uh, the seas rage and the winds stop, right? Yeah, I think, you know, this is just an exceptionally powerful and in-your-face symbol of planets dying, Cloud. You know, it's... <laughs> We get right into it. So I love that. Um, Something that I think is going to be fleshed out much more in the remake, my gut tells me that the first time we played, I didn't really have it sink into me as much, but I knew we were a group of eco-terrorists at the beginning of the game. Right. But the violence that our heroes create, it's a bit off screen and we'll get into it deeper, but they engage in violent protest. Yes, they do. And so I think this game asks some really important questions about when is it okay to cross certain lines, even if you're Mm -hmm. on the right side. Mm -hmm. And Barrett is the character through whom we get to have that very difficult conversation. And then on the flip side of it, of course, redemption uh, is a big theme in Final Fantasy VII. There were a couple of Final Fantasy heroes with darker pasts, most notably probably Shadow. Celeste certainly has a redemption story, but I feel like it's more at the center of Seven that we've got more flawed characters who make more mistakes, even throughout the course of the story, as opposed to them being you know buried in their past and there's somebody different now. Um, our characters have to learn a lot and, and grow from their mistakes in Final Fantasy Seven. One I think we may actually have a a debate about at some point, a, a disagreement on in terms of the, the value of doing this from a literary standpoint, but we've got to have a conversation eventually about sympathetic villains and similarly but different to that, charismatic villains. Sure. The bad guys exist in a bit more of a gray area in Seven than they did in the previous games where the evil was pretty clearly blatantly and with no real justification, just evil. Just, yeah, the horrible people. I do think they make some stabs at it. I think General Leo 
is not really a villain, but he's on the other side, right. and he is charismatic. He is sympathetic. And four, yeah, Kane Highwind uh, and Golbez, I think, are, are pretty sympathetic, given that at least partially they're being uh, mind-controlled. Leon from Final Fantasy II. But I think you're right. I think that as we learn more and more about Sephiroth, we at least understand where he's coming from like we know what his goals are we know what he wants and why he wants it even if it is sort of an an outsized response to his personal trauma like i've said before uh, on other episodes i think we need to be careful about saying that because somebody has had a bad past they must therefore become a villain but if we're going to have villains we should at least understand why they are villains so that that'll be a really interesting conversation and then even the turks are an interesting Part of this too, right? Maybe more on the charismatic. Some of them are more or less sympathetic than others, but you kind of like those guys despite yourself. Yeah. They're kind of, well, I mean, it helps that they're cool. Yeah. They they got a theme. That's right. And then, of course, the the big, big thing that Hironobu Sakaguchi has always talked about with this game and wanting to explore was a kind of spirituality and thoughts on life and death that, you know, Final Fantasy really had come up to this conversation before. Uh, it's I'd learned from those resonant art guys, and I think I'd heard it before, that when they were making this game, Sakaguchi's mother passed away. And, you know, he was dealing with some very real emotion about the circle of life, if you will. And... Uh, there's a really beautiful and profound conversation about that that even pulls on some Middle Eastern religions. We're not going to be able to do uh, a breakdown of the Kabbalah for you all. We'll we'll do our best to read some and as we go throughout this and learn a little bit because I know it plays a role in influencing this story. But even just seeing the end result without knowing, you know, some of the religious imagery they were drawing on. There, there's a pretty profound message about spirituality in this game. And then, of course, it's got all the other typical fun Final Fantasy stuff. There's found family, there's love over hate. Uh, so we'll, we'll discuss all of those things as we go throughout. We'll keep be keeping all of those big questions in mind as we finally jump into the beast, the legend of Final Fantasy VII. We have to begin with a a frankly absurdly detailed look at the intro of Final Fantasy VII. It was never my favorite as a kid, but it's almost nothing happens. (laughs) I mean, you know, the beginning of Final Fantasy VI, we get this story about a war and there's all this setup and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Eight gave us this huge montage of everything that was going to come in the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of the technical awe of the ones after, you know, and as a kid, I don't remember this intro really sticking out to me as much. But when you return to it and look at it through a historic lens and you look at everything that had come before it, this is a moment in video gaming. In fact, I'm going to compare it to a moment in film. Okay. And that is the moment 
that Dorothy opens the door to a world of color. Nice. There had been color in movies before. Again, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those, it's like the Beatles comparison. There had been rock and roll music. There had been color. So why is that moment a groundbreaking one for cinema? For very similar reasons that this intro to Final Fantasy VII changes things. You're opening a window into an entirely new world. In fact, it begins. And this is I don't think we've talked about how at the end of every Final Fantasy game, when they roll the credits and then right. you finally get to the screen where it says the end. It's a start. You just field. kind of fly through space. Yeah. 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 And so I had always kind of just, you know, taken that as, hey, we're moving to the next game. We move through time and space together. Not much more than that. But I do love that Final Fantasy VII opens by looking out into what appears to be right space. Yeah. Yeah. There is so much in just that. That this appears to be the star field we are so used to with Final Fantasy at the beginning instead of the end. Uh, but it turns out that it is so much more than that. Or perhaps that the star fields we have been gazing at at the end of these other Final Fantasies might well have been something more. Yeah. So the first sign that something is off and also that this is a completely different kind of game is that the camera starts to pan around kind of erratically. And we don't have any music yet. We've just got this kind of ambiguous sound, this ambient noise, mm-hmm. kind of warbling mm-hmm. as the camera jolts around. And I think at that point, if you're paying close attention, you realize, okay, those aren't stars. Right. right they're dots of light or And then just barely, it starts to turn green before we pan out with the camera. And we see a young woman's face looking into the space where we just were. So we've been super disoriented. And then it flips us around and we see... Aerith Gainsborough, as the green light sort of comes up from our perspective and and washes over her face just a bit. What is she looking at and why is she looking at it? Is this this just a trick, a visual trick? Or is this meant to be like she's looking into like a pipe, you know, that the the life stream flows through to, to power the city? Or is this just like a... A neat visual. Both. I'm not sure it does matter one way or the other, but I, I do think it's a very easy interpretation to say, yeah, she's looking into a well. Once okay. we come to know this young woman later, we'll know that she has an, a, a special attachment to what we will learn is called the life stream. But if you're playing this for the first time, it really doesn't matter. It's just a nice little bit of foreshadowing but you're not going to put the pieces together, right? She sure. could be looking at anything. One of the reasons I like that, that it almost doesn't matter what practically it is, I was listening to Connie Willis give a talk once on the first page of a story. She was talking about foreshadowing, but she was also talking about first 
first lines, first paragraphs, first pages in general. And she said, you can put anything you want. You can give away the whole game at the beginning of a story, especially in a novel. You can give it away on the first page of a novel because your readers still trying to orient themselves. Perhaps they're dancing about a, uh, an amorphous star field. And so it like you can put whatever metaphor you want. You can put all this imagery you want because your reader is still figuring things out. You can't go, I mean, it can't be so dis, disjointed and jarring that it doesn't work. But so long as it works, you can do just about anything you want at the beginning. So I kind of like that maybe it doesn't really matter what Aerith is looking at. What matters is that we have the live stream and we have Aerith. Yeah, and I, th- I think even the next thing that happens really drives that home, which is, first of all, we get a cut. This is our first camera cut. Again, a, a storytelling technique that would not have existed like this in the previous games because the camera was pretty much always in a fixed position. So we immediately transition from looking up at Aerith's face to a long view of this alleyway she's standing in. But the well or the pipe, whatever it was, is now off camera. You can only see the light barely glowing from it. So again, whatever that is, just over there. (laughs) She turns her head. Again, a thing that was, you know, not even fully right. You couldn't even have characters do that much in the previous games. That's how big a step we've taken in technology. And she looks over the camera's shoulder, throws the basket of flowers onto her arm, and proceeds to walk to the end of the alleyway. And the camera pulls back with her, a tracking shot. Again, there's no real camera. There's no one walking backward to get this shot, but it's emulating that as done in film. Right. And and we're taking another step here, right? We went from the star field to the world, almost from 2D to 3D, like you said, right? Yeah, this whole thing is very transitional, and I really feel like purposefully so. It's a good example of, I think, how aware they were of what they were doing, because we're transitioning from 2D to 3D. We're transitioning from medieval to modern. We're transitioning from opera to cinema. Also, from a single shot now to a wide view, and we're at this moment. Dorothy has opened the door, and we can see some color, and we're about to walk through. So, as she continues to now walk toward us, the player, the viewer, she walks through a couple of beams of light and out of an alleyway that is now totally in the darkness. Meanwhile, we can hear her steps echoing very clearly off of this alley. And this is an audiovisual experience, again, that no game before it could give you. The way that she comes in and out of the light, the way the background sinks into the darkness, the echoing of the steps is all sucking you into this world. And then something very abrupt happens. Uh, In the foreground, a car abruptly cuts in front and stops Aerith in her track. She has to like stop right by the curb. And it's jolting. 
the same way it's probably jolting to see a car in a Final Fantasy game. That's the first one. Yeah, they're, they're definitely making a statement with that. And then a second one rolls by from left to right as a man walks into view from behind the camera. So again, now we've got all of this movement in a 3D space that it's almost overwhelming. There's cars going by on the road. Uh, a man walks out from the foreground and, and onto the street. And we're starting to get a sense that we're in a hustling and bustling city, despite how quiet and, and private a moment we were just in the middle of with Aerith praying or, or doing whatever it was she was doing with the well. More people emerge and are walking all over the street, but they're mostly in shadow and featureless. Maybe a shout out to Yoshitaka Mano, maybe a limitation of the technology at the time. But there's just people now everywhere. Just off to the right, you can see some kind of ratty New York style apartments above something called Goblin's Bar. On the left, again, remember, Aerith is still standing in an alleyway here, is a theater showing a play called Loveless. Hey, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about Final Fantasy VII first, and then we might get into some of those spinoffs and the compilation of Final Fantasy VII. But I haven't played any of those uh, spinoffs, and you have. Can you tell me, do we ever get to see Loveless? I don't know if you can see the whole thing. You'd have to ask someone who's played Crisis Core more than once, probably, and, and I will do it again before we get to it. But you certainly get to hear a lot of it. The main characters do enjoy quoting from the play, and so it's one of those things that gives this world just a great deal of life because in Final Fantasy VII proper, the original, we only get a few mentions of the fact that this is a play that exists right right it's not like the opera of six where you go there it's it's one of the background features and and it remains just a, a little detail back there right and another thing that drives that home and you know this is the kind of stuff that you and i don't really get into and this was before easter egg culture and i would go on after every episode of the mandalorian and check out every little thing that i missed on youtube <laughs> uh-huh but there are these just little bits of text also on this theater building that people love to speculate about what they mean. We can just see the end of a word, O-N-S, maybe S-O-N-S. Um, above the Loveless poster, it says 625. That's thought, I think, to be uh, about a release date. Sure. Um, N-E and D-Y are some letters you can see, which you know some people think is a reference to the fact that this game was originally supposed to be set in New York City. And that's why Midgar has some very similar aesthetics to it. But again, it's just, it's just stuff to contemplate and talk about. And it's why they're making the whole Midgar section into one game, because there's so much left to explore. Then what happens next is, is almost overwhelming to, again, look at in hindsight, because we've gone from, you know, a backtracking shot it speeds up to reveal all this stuff and you don't have time to take it in because it just gets exponentially faster and all of a sudden raises into the air. And that and now we've got a big crane up. Again, another cinematic move that you wouldn't have been able to do before this. 
the camera pans underneath a large bridge that appears over the top of us and a clock overlooking a courtyard that will become a very important area of the game later. You know, at this point, the buildings start to become a little more featureless too, and it's one of the things I've really loved about seeing the remake is the way all of the detail maintains in this shot. But there's still something amazing about just seeing all of these buildings, and out of nowhere, they become dwarfed by, again, this bright green light. We're now hundreds of feet from the ground level and where we were just a minute ago, but here's that green light again coming out of an enormous silver structure that dwarfs all of these other buildings. And you can start to see, again, if you know what you're looking for, the way the city is sectored off. Mm -hmm. There are vertical beams of green light and smoke that come into view. The smokestacks around the edge, circling this suddenly viewable, massive metropolis, unlike any town or city we've seen in a Final Fantasy game before. Searchlights going around everywhere, a bit of a throwback to Vector and a reminder that in this world, industry and military are going to be very, very closely linked. And this entire city comes into view. So you talked about it as a cinematic technique, and especially in a visual medium, it is. But writers do this also. You take enough writing classes, you go to enough panels about writing, you're going to hear somebody talk about zooming in and zooming out. And it's about how you might start with your description broadly. You might be describing the landscape or whatever, and then you, you slowly get us into the characters you want us to be interested in. And so you'll start with the big details and slowly get us to the small details. Or you might start with the broad details and slowly get us to the more focused details. Right. Or, or, for that matter, vice versa. So somebody writing this novel would have started by describing a star field and then describing a single person and then describing a couple more people and then a few more people and then the things around them and the buildings around them. And like you said, zooming way out. I think it is particularly interesting when authors do this to show connections between characters. That is, we might start zoomed in on a particular character zoom out to show the environment and perhaps to some degree how that environment is a character and then zoom back in on another character not really all that far away yeah that's that's exactly how this works too before we get to the zoom in the kind of climax of this whole thing of course set with uematsu's brilliant score the the climactic moment of it and we get the title card for Final Fantasy VII, plastered right across our wide view of the city of Midgar, which might be my favorite fictional city. And by favorite, I don't mean, hey, cool, it'd be fun to live there. <laughs> no, no, it would not. Yeah. yeah. I talk a lot about just good ideas. How many 
good ideas does your story have? The city of Midgar is an exceptional idea. Yeah, and and it's interesting that it's named Midgar, right? Right. Midgar is a shortened form of Midgard, which comes from Old Norse mythology. Uh, Midgard is the the realm of humans, as opposed to you know Elfheim and Jotunheim and that and all you know the the homes of the elves and the homes of the giants. Midgard is the prime material plane. It is where humanity lives, and so that. In Final Fantasy VII, you know, we've always talked about Final Fantasy drawing from a variety of stories and cultures and mythologies. So deciding to call their main big city where most of humanity lives Midgar, uh, interesting choice, especially since they do put their, their powerful corporate figures at the top of a tower, which might double as a world tree given that they're, they're pulling from the life stream. Yeah. There's also a lot you can see here without knowing what you're seeing. You can see the elitism and discrimination. You see the sectors, but you don't know what they are. Right. Yeah. You don't know how the plates work, but there they are. You can see the refineries, one of which you were about to blow up. You can see, as you mentioned, the ivory tower of power in the middle of the city. So I love that the title card for Final Fantasy VII with the logo of the meteor behind it splashes right over the top of Midgar. It's just, oh. And then before we start to pan in, because the camera just kind of settles for a minute on this title card, we get an abrupt cut. Again, something you would not have been able to do before. And we just see the side of a train, mainly the wheels, and they're yeah. screeching to a halt. Yes, they are. Trains again. We'll, we'll see trains, I think, throughout Final Fantasy after this, but from 6, 7, definitely in, in 8. I don't think we see one in 9 uh, or 10. Yeah. But plays a big role in 15. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, you know, another way of putting us into the new setting a different kind of train than the ghost train of Final Fantasy VI. It's right. really a bit more modern, a bit more sleek and steel. And after this very brief, like I said, abrupt cut of seeing the side of the train for a second, we go back to our camera at the top of the city that begins to fall down to the opposite side of the tower that it was on before. And I, I do mean fall. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a, a slow zoom in from high above. Like it feels like you're falling out of the air. And I think one of the reasons that that's driven home is as you're falling, it gives you a couple more cuts to the train, which is really disorienting yes. on purpose. Yeah. So you see the right side of the train, left side of the train, you're falling, you're falling. You see the top of the train, you're still falling. You almost hit Shinra Tower with the camera. Like, it zooms right by that thing. And for just a moment, you've got this great shot that I love. And it reminds me of something in an episode of The West Wing. Oh, neat. There's, yeah, there's a moment where Toby goes and talks to the homeless man, the homeless veteran. Sure. Who, who has his coat. And the camera 
starts on the White House, and you can see it off in the distance, and then it kind of pans down to all of these people living under a bridge and, like, burning trash to stay warm. Mm-hmm. And very fuzzy in the background, you can still see the clean seat of power. And, and I feel like this moment where you can see Shinra Tower up close and all the people down underneath it, as we zoom down into what our heroes are about to be doing, we get this real sense visually in our gut that these people have and these people do not. So as our camera continues to fall, at one point, it also turns so that it can run just parallel with the train. And now this is fantastic because now Final Fantasy VII is being uniquely video game in its cinema because we didn't have drones yet. And you could do cranes. It would be very expensive to do this in a movie. And I I guess it was probably very expensive to do it in the game. Sure, sure. But if you wanted to capture a a live-action train with this shot, it would take, like, months of planning, and you wouldn't get very many tries. Right. So because in a digital world you can put the camera wherever you want, this is a unique look and feel to something that you're not even going to get in a TV show or a movie. Maybe animated and, sure. and video games. I think that's about it. Well, now they can do just about it. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, well, because, because uh, like you were saying earlier, right. films and TV shows are also CG. They're also animated. And therefore influenced by literally this moment, whether they know it or not. I Precisely. It. It's so true. Um So we finally arrive back on ground level. Like Ira said, we took off from one part of the city with one character. We've landed not too far away, but it feels like we've taken this huge journey. And the train screeches to a halt, pulls into a platform, and a couple of characters hop off. And this again, playing in the new sandbox we've got 3d what are we going to do the first character who we will later learn is named biggs so we're, we're keeping the biggs and wedge trope going though they're good guys in this one and not imperial soldiers mm-hmm. way in the distance furthest from the cameras the first person to hop off the train give somebody a hip toss good old professional <laughs> wrestling move. the soldier comes after him hip toss That guy's out. (laughs) A little bit closer to us, another character who we will later learn is named Jesse, fan favorite, hops off the train. Another wrestling move, super kick. (laughs) From the top ropes. Right. (laughs) Like these guys have been watching their WWE. Jesse, apparently a big Shawn Michaels fan. Sweet chin music. (laughs) Another soldier down. I was going to say Imperial soldier, but they're technically corporate owned. Sure, sure. Which is an empire of a sort, but we've had that conversation. A little bit closer to us, kind of where Jesse was, uh, a larger young man who we will come to know is named Wedge. He gets off the train and you know he does? Hmm. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) No clothesline, no pile driver. Nothing. <laughs> hoping the remake they give him a little something to do. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm 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 hoping for the clothesline. 
And then from the train door that is closest to us, a bombastic, dark-skinned man with a gun on his arm. Yeah. Bombasts off the train. He doesn't get off the train. He doesn't walk off the train. His arms are flailing. He is here for a mission. Yes, he is. Uh, we, we talked a little bit earlier about being cyberpunk, and I said maybe this isn't quite cyberpunk because there's not really much in the way of an internet, but this man's a cyborg. Yep. Uh, so, so there's certainly that. Yeah, that was, that was one I thought of too. I was like, yeah, there's lots of little interesting ways. We'll have a bigger conversation about Barrett on the next episode, and there, there's a lot to talk about. And obviously throughout the game, there's a, he's one of our main characters. He's one of the more interesting main characters, I think, in all of Final Fantasy. So we'll get into that. But our introduction to him here after he's waving his arms and he gets off the train, he looks up to the top of the train. Yeah. And gives a big gesture with his hand. Yeah. And then at the top of the train, the first thing we see is a single strand of spiky blonde hair. Yes. I mean... Could you introduce a character more perfectly? There's a reason this scene has been done over and over and over again. I I do have to wonder, what was he doing on top of the train? Like Being a badass. Showing off? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to assume that there was some hijacking of the train, and that required uh, our, our hero to be on top of the train so he could make this awesome entrance. But maybe he was, yeah, maybe he was just showing off. Well, and you know what? There is... Again, you can make the cynical argument that Crisis Core uh, begins in the same way, uh, just you know, for feels and funsies and for Final Fantasy fans. Mm-hmm. But Crisis Core begins in the same way, and it is a, a kind of more secretive mission. I, I think Zach drops down on top of a train, and okay. so knowing what you know, what's to come, you might say maybe subconsciously Cloud is zacking it up right here. Sure, emulating his hero, as we will come to learn. That's right. Uh, being his living legacy. And so after we get just a a view of him, Cloud does on one hand. (laughs) Showing off. Flips off the top of the train into a Deadpool-style superhero landing. Mm -hmm. Just like, I mean, looking like a badass. He's just trying to look like a badass. And then we get the first line of dialogue in Final Fantasy VII, Barrett Wallace simply saying, Come on, newcomer, follow me. And this begins the tale of Final Fantasy VII. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who has reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. While the podcast is free to listen to via archive.org, or if you want to on Patreon, 
if you want to download it, you'll need to spend just $1 a month on our Patreon services. Join us next time when we commit eco-terrorism, uncover the insidious nature of the Shinra Corporation, and meet a girl who owns a bar. <laughs>